the message that we're going to look at today is going to be a similar tones to several passages that we have seen in First Peter. It's one of the main themes of, of the letter that he wrote to the people who had been scattered throughout the area, the Christians who were suffering. And uh, the message is trust God while suffering. Easier said than done, right? Trust God while suffering. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. And as we look at this scripture together, um, I, 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 you never know like what to say or when, when you say too much, when you share too much as a pastor. I mean, some things are obvious, uh, especially if, if Rose is sitting on the front pew and she can give me a look like, you better not go there. Uh, but she is keeping kids this morning, so who knows where we're going to go. And um, anyway, First uh, Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So I'm going to break this verse down. That first word, beloved, he cares about the people to whom he is writing. He cares about them. And if he's made this obvious throughout the letter. We are here at the end of chapter 4. We just have three, I believe, more sermons left in First Peter. Um, chapter 5 is shorter than the others. And, and so we have three more sermons after this. We're getting close to the end. And he is bringing home his main points and, and re-emphasizing some things. And so that's what we're going to do. But the first thing that we, I want us to see here is that Peter loved these people. And Peter could identify with these people. Peter knew what it was like to suffer for the Lord. Peter knew what it was like to suffer because of his own failures and mistakes. Peter knew suffering. And many of us in this room understand that. Many of us in this room understand suffering. Um, there are some small ways that we suffer. For example, I have a, a eight-year-old and a three-year-old going on 16. And um, so I would love to sleep in my recliner at times. I would love that. Uh, but those kids make that impossible. In fact, I believe it was Friday, it might have been Saturday, it might have been yesterday, but one day recently, I fell asleep in my recliner for, I mean, it was precious, it was like a good 30 seconds, it was, it was amazing, and Emma runs into the living room and she's like, happy Father's Day, Dad, and I'm like, it's not Father's Day yet, let me sleep, and so, of course, that's not true suffering, Right? We have, we have people who are around the world suffering for the name of Christ and for the sake of Christ. They're suffering simply because they put their faith in him, simply because they follow him. They, they believe that he is God and they, they want to profess Jesus as Lord. And in doing so, they put their lives in danger. There are many statistics out there, and we're going to look at this in a couple of weeks, um, that say that there are more Christians suffered last year than any other time in any other year in, in the history prior. And so we 
here in the Bible Belt, when we think about suffering, we're, we're talking about it in a much different way than some people around the world talk about it. But we know that suffering is relative to the person and to the individual and to what we go through. And suffering is real. It does not minimize our suffering just because our suffering is not risking our life uh, just to be able to call ourselves Christians. That does not mean uh, that evil is not all around us, that pain and suffering and death is not all around us, that trials and tribulations are not all around us. They are. It's, this is truth. This is life. And uh, I, I am definitely pessimistic sometimes. Uh, but this is a reality. And we see that this is reality right here in this verse when, when Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when, not if, when it comes upon you to test you. We as Christians, as followers of Jesus, no matter how good our circumstances on this side of eternity are, we are going to constantly be bombarded with temptations and trials. Things can be going well. We, we can think, man, when is the last time I struggled with a sin? Well, as soon as you think that, guess what's happening? Here comes the struggle. When is the last time I struggled with faithfulness? Well, here it, here it comes. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Now, this is the second time he's talked about testing. If you remember, uh, he talked about a, a fire earlier in 1 Peter that would test us. And in, in that scenario, I talked about how uh, a silversmith or goldsmith, if, if, if you are uh, trying to purify metal, you put it over the fire, and the dross rises to the top, the impurities in the metal rise to the top as... Um, as the fire is on it and it's getting hot and the metal is melting and the, you can pour the impurities off. And it's the process that God uses uh, to, to get those things that shouldn't be in us out of us. So trials can be a good thing, right? They can be a healthy part of us following Jesus. He can use trials to make us into his image. Um, but trials can also be difficult. Trials can also... Put our life at risk. Trials can also um, make us more, more vulnerable to temptation. But trials are going to come on this side of eternity. Now, we are promised a day when there won't be any more of that, right? When there will be no more pain or suffering or temptation. There will be a day where every tear will be wiped away by God himself. There will be no more tears. That day is coming. But that day is not here yet. And in the meantime, we have a responsibility to be realistic about life. We have a responsibility to realize that trials and suffering will come. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes, comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Uh, just a quick show of hands. Don't be shy. If you've ever experienced suffering, will you raise your hand for me? We shouldn't be surprised. Everybody pretty much, you know, raised their hand. Uh, Logan went in the back. Maybe he wouldn't have raised his hand. But pretty much 
we've all experienced suffering and trials. So we shouldn't be surprised when it comes. And yet, what do I do every time a suffering or a trial comes? What is going on? What am I going to do? It, I constantly find myself surprised by the suffering, by the trial. And I believe it's because I'm not keeping my eyes on Christ. And I'm not keeping my eyes on the reality of on this side of eternity, there will be suffering. Verse 13. So don't be surprised, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This is saying, Peter is saying, it is a privilege to share in Christ's sufferings. It is a privilege to be able to suffer for the Lord and to to do what he has called you to do. And it means that you're his. And so if you're his, it means that you will get to rejoice and be glad when truth is revealed later, when his glory is revealed. Because if you are suffering with Christ and for Christ, then that is evidence that you belong to him. And that is a good thing. Amen? And so, I, I remember a time several years ago, I can't remember the exact year, um, but it was around 2013 or 14. And um, I was campus minister at the University of Arkansas at Monticello. And I, had a, I also worked for the Arkansas Baptist State Convention. And I had a, a, a responsibility to go to DeWitt one night. And I can't remember why I was there, if it was a Sunday night or if I was doing a revival there or what was going on. But... I can remember driving home through the Delta. If y'all don't know where DeWitt is, it's pretty close to the, where the Arkansas River and the Mississippi River come together. And um, so I remember driving home, and the next day on campus, we were going to have, this was not just something for our campus, this was something for campuses around the country and around the world. Uh, we were going to, we were encouraging our students to go and share their faith, share what God had done in their life, share the gospel um, with at least one person. And so the year before was the first year we had done this. And the year before, I mentioned it to a few students. I didn't really make a big deal out of it. And uh, Austin West, who was in New York, he was my assistant at the time, and we showed up on campus, and there were students all over campus sharing the gospel with their friends. It was an incredible day. And so then fast forward a year, and I thought, well, if I just tell them to go do it, and they went and did it, and we saw that much success, what would happen if we actually like prepared for this day? If we prayed for this day? If, if I trained them in how to share the gospel and things like that? And so we began to do that. We began to go through these things. And so for weeks, we were preparing for this day. And on my way home from DeWitt, and this is a very rare experience for me. I wish it was more common, um, but it's not. And so it sounds a little weird even repeating this story. And the further you get from something like this, the stranger it feels. But um, as I was driving home, I just felt the presence of God. Probably because I was driving a Jeep. But uh, no, I'm just playing. Uh, but I just felt the presence of God. And I was praying about the next day and praying that God would use my students on campus. 
And I just felt an overwhelming sense of peace that whatever happened the next day, our ministry would never be the same on campus. And it was uh, such a powerful feeling that I began to cry. And when I say cry, I mean weep like a baby. And so much so that I had to pull over for a second because I couldn't see the road to drive. And so... I, needless to say, I was very excited about the next day. And I get to campus, and there's nobody. <laughs> I don't see any of my students. None of them are out sharing the gospel. Not, the year before, I had just mentioned it, and there were all these people. This year, we had done all this training and all this preparation and all this prayer and nothing. And it was a hard day. And I would love to say, and I walked around the corner, and there they all were. But that's not how the day went. Um, students kept coming up to me with excuses of why they didn't share the gospel. And I was heartbroken. And I, and I was like, God, did, did I mishear you? What, what was that sense of peace that I experienced uh, yesterday that our ministry would never be the same? And I, I went home, and I... Rose, you know, tried to cheer me up and encourage me like Rose does. Uh, it didn't work, but she tried. And then I called Michael, my, my best friend who lives in Texas, and talked to him. And he told me this great story of, uh, of when he was a student. We were students at the same time and how he was a student. And our campus minister told us to go out and share the gospel. And he was so uh, scared that he was like, no, I, I can't do that. And he was like, okay, well... Uh, how about you just go, like, invite somebody to hang out? And he was too shy to do that. And then he was like, okay, well, how about you just go with Philip while he tells somebody about Jesus? And he's like, okay, I can do that. And, uh, and he was talking about how, you know, they've got to start somewhere and that the training I gave them is not going to be fruitless. And he said all the right things, and it didn't help either um, because I'm hard-hearted and stubborn, and I don't know what all the reasons were, but it didn't help. Uh, but I emailed my boss, David James, and if you guys, I don't know if any of you know David, uh, he used to be the team leader for college and young leaders for the state of Arkansas, and I emailed him and just said, hey, here's what's going on. If you have time to call, call. If not, you know, shoot me an email when you have time. And he just shot a really quick email back, and he was um, quoting Jesus in the high priestly prayer, looking over Jerusalem. Um, oh, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not let me. And he just said, sometimes when we follow Jesus, all we can do is relate to his pain and suffering. And he knows where you are, and he's been where you are, and he, he, he understands it more than you, will ever, you can ever imagine. And there was just something about that that Jesus knows my suffering, little bitty suffering, right? People didn't show up, boo-hoo, Philip, okay? But still, it was important to me in that moment. It was suffering for me, and Jesus has been there. Jesus knows. And so we can rejoice in our sufferings knowing that God is going to do things. Now, uh, the next night at the BCM, we were supposed to have a uh, testimony service, and so I wasn't preaching or anything. The students were going to give testimonies of how it went when they shared the gospel the day before. And so 
I considered locking the BCM doors the next day and just saying, oh, what's the point of us having a building on campus and being really dramatic like that, you know? Uh, but my wife and others talked me out of it. And then uh, I was trying to figure out what to do, and so I just decided we're, we were still going to have a testimony service. And uh, no one had a testimony. And I said, all right, well, let's pray. And we prayed, and it was a very short service. And I said, I would like to see our leaders in uh, the conference room when, when we're all done. And so we prayed, and we went in the conference room, and I said, okay, what's going on? We had to come to Jesus moment. What is going on in your life where we all agreed that this is what God desired for us to do, and this is the direction we needed to go, and then it didn't happen? So what's going on in, in our lives that is preventing us from being who Jesus called us to be and doing what he has called us to do? And I said, I'll start. And I talked about something in my life that was distracting me from Jesus. And then I had the next person pray for me. And they prayed for me. And then it was their turn. And they said something that was distracting them, whether it was a sin or something else. And we went around the room and did that. In the next year, we saw dozens and dozens and dozens of people led to Jesus by our students. And it was directly related from that day. It didn't go anything like I thought it would. I thought we were going to go share the gospel and people would get saved that day. I thought it was just going to, I had it planned out in my head how it should work. It didn't go like that. But God still was faithful. God still changed many lives through what he had called us to do. And in our faithfulness and in our unfaithfulness, God still showed his glory. And so when we're talking about suffering, it's important, and we will end on this note later, but it's important to know that Jesus, that God is sovereign and that he is in control. And when we're suffering and we can't see where it's leading and we can't see the purpose of it, he knows. And so... Not because we are confident that our suffering is just going to end and not be that bad. Our suffering might end in death. Our suffering might not go the way that we think it should go. But we can rejoice because it doesn't matter what we think is best. It matters what God knows is best. It doesn't matter what plans we lay and, and what we plan to do. What matters is what God knows is going to work out for the glory of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And therefore, we can rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So when we're suffering for Christ's sake, we get to experience his glory. In, in moments and in just hints of tastes of it right now, but in fullness in days to come when we get to heaven. And so, if we are suffering and insult, being insulted for the name of Christ, we are blessed. But, verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. 
people might be murdering them. And if we go back to the beginning of this passage, the fiery trials, uh, many Christians were being burned alive. And a lot of people believe that Peter used fiery trials on purpose to, to let them know this, these are the trials that you are going through. And so when we're going through those trials, when someone is hurting us, we don't turn around and hurt them back. We suffer in a way that honors God, in a way that glorifies God. We're not to suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. If someone is talking about us and putting us down, we don't get even by then turning around and talking about them and putting them down. We leave that in God's hands. We, we love others, even our enemies, and we don't return evil for evil. And that's what this verse is saying. And it's easy um, to, to say, well, I'm, I'm not going to murder somebody. I'm not a thief although some of us in this room are. I'm not an evildoer. Well, according to Scripture, we all are. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, And then, of course, there are meddlers. And so we have to be careful that our suffering is for Christ's glory and our suffering is not for us turning around and doing the very things that others are doing to us. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... And this is an interesting choice of word here, Christian. The word Christian is actually only used in the Bible three times. And this is one of those times. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. You see, Christians in the past didn't call themselves Christians. Other people called them Christians as an insult. Y'all remember Christ who was crucified and killed? These are his followers, little Christs, Christians. And so in the past, people would call them Christians because of how much they looked like Jesus. And it was an insult, and at the same time, the greatest compliment. But now, when people talk about Christians, when a lot of outsiders talk about Christians... It's not because of how much we look like Jesus. Now when they call us Christians as an insult, it's because we're hypocrites, because we're not like Jesus. Many times in in our country, in our culture. And so we have to be careful to make sure that we are identifying with Jesus, not just in name, but in action and in deed. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Peter knows about this. When Jesus is being beaten and interrogated and then later beaten and then put on the cross, where's Peter? He's denying him three times before the rooster crowed the morning of his crucifixion. So Peter knows about shame. Peter knows about shame related to following Jesus. And yet this is Peter later in his life when he has already suffered a lot for the Lord And his worst suffering is still to come. And yet he is saying that suffering is a blessing. He is saying that God uses suffering for his glory. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. 
Praise God that we can be called little Christ. Praise God that Jesus made it possible for us to have a relationship with him. Praise God that he, yes, that he died on the cross. As hard as it is for us to look at the cross and to see the suffering that he had to go through, praise God that it happened because if it didn't, we wouldn't have a chance for a relationship with Jesus. Our sins wouldn't have been paid for. We would have to pay for our sins. So praise God for the cross. Praise God for suffering. And not just for Jesus' suffering, but for our suffering. Because God knows what he's doing in our suffering, and he knows how to use it for our good and his glory. Yet if anyone suffers as a a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Maybe there are some of us in this room who, because of our faithfulness to Jesus, because of our obedience to him, we are going to be made fun of. Not that that's the worst kind of suffering, but it is a form of suffering. We are going to be picked on because we have chosen to live our lives in a certain way. We have chosen not to participate in certain types of things. And so maybe we're going to be insulted for those decisions. Rejoice. Because what it means is is that if you're willing to suffer for Christ's sake, you must belong to him. You must have love in your heart for him. You must have turned away from your sin and turned to your Savior. Salvation and, and, and rebirth must have taken place. And so, let him glorify God in that name. Verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? There are so many scriptures in the New Testament, or in Old Testament and New Testament, where God disciplines his children. Hebrews says, basically, if an earthly father doesn't discipline his children, he probably doesn't love them. Like, if a father loves his children, he's going to do what's best for them. He's going to teach them right from wrong. He's going to discipline them. And Peter is saying, if God... If the discipline that God doles out on this side of eternity for Christians, for his followers, can be tough, then imagine what awaits on the other side of eternity for those who don't know him. And there's two sides of the coin here. There are Christians who our worst suffering takes place now. And our best glory and our best rejoicing and our best rewards are, are seen later in heaven. And then there are those who do not know Jesus, whose best rejoicing and best times are now. If this is as good as it gets, how sad is that? If cancer is as good as it gets, If addiction is as good as it gets, if death is as good as it gets, how sad. Because what's promised for those who are enemies of God is he, being a just and righteous God, has to punish wrongdoing. For everyone, me, everyone, 
But the thing is, is because I'm a follower of Jesus, I've put my faith in him. He paid my debt. He paid our debt for those of us who know him, who follow him on the cross. When we become Christians, we're exchanging our righteousness or lack of it for his righteousness and its perfection. And our righteousness is punished on the cross and his righteousness is put on so that when we see God, he sees us in the righteousness of Christ. Thank God for that. But for those who don't know him, for those who do not have on the righteousness of Christ, our righteous deeds are like what in the sight of the Lord? Filthy rags. So when God sees them and their righteousness, he will have to punish every wrongdoing, every sin that was committed against him, against a holy God, against the children whom he loves. And we have to be careful to make sure that we have a relationship with him. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 18. He's, he's quoting here from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? We just talked about that. Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Therefore, let those who suffer. Who suffers? All of us. So he's specifically talking about those who suffer for Jesus, those who have a relationship with him. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust and this is a banking word here. It's like making a deposit. You're entrusting it. You're leaving it there. We're entrusting our souls to a faithful creator. Do you trust God? You seem unsure. Do you trust him? If we trust him, then we have to commit and trust to make a deposit of our souls, of our future, of our hope, of our pain, of our suffering. We leave it all with Him. And we trust Him with it. Our lives, our plans, we leave it with Him. Our desires, what we want in this situation, what we want out of life, we leave it with Him. And we believe that he is faithful that he will uphold his promises and his promise his ultimate promise his main promise is that he will be faithful to all his promises that he will save those who put their faith in him that he will make everything right in the end that one day when things become clearer on the other side of eternity, we will be able to look at all this pain and all this suffering and all this hurt and 
everything we went through. We will be able to see it in its fullness. And we will be able to look at God and look at it and say, praise you. You knew what you were doing. You had a plan all along. You were faithful. And that's where we have to be. For those of us who follow him, who believe in him, who have faith in him, we have to entrust our souls to a faithful creator. And in the meantime, until those promises are fulfilled, until the end comes, we're to do good. We're to be faithful ourselves. We're to strive to be like him. When people call us Christians, it should be because of how much we look like Jesus. And so, my question for us this morning is where do we stand individually as a church? Do we have faith that the suffering that we have experienced, are experiencing, and will experience, that there is a purpose in it, that God has a plan, that it's for his glory, that it will result in his glory? And if so, if the suffering that we are experiencing is for his sake, then what is keeping us from rejoicing? Because he will be glorified. He will bring all the darkness to the light. He will make everything right. All the suffering has been for a purpose. And one day we will see what that purpose is. One day he will make it known in his way, in his timing. We won't know everything. We won't be like God in that way. But we'll see things clearly. We'll understand a lot more than we do now. And whatever we know won't prevent an ounce of us from glorifying him with all of our hearts, from worshiping him with everything that we are. So maybe you're here this morning and you've experienced suffering in your life. And maybe that suffering was done by your own deeds. Maybe you brought that suffering on yourself as evildoers, as meddlers. We've all been there. Peter has been there. Turn to Jesus. Repent of those things. Ask him to forgive you of those things. Turn to him and just ask him, Lord, forgive me. Name specific things that you have done. Forgive me of this. Forgive me of that. Help me to follow you the way that I'm supposed to. If you've never began a relationship with Jesus, if you've never become a follower of his, you could do that this morning. You just submit your life to him. You put your faith in him. You believe that he will do the things that he has promised to do. That he has done what he said he would do, and he will do what he has promised to do in the future. You put your faith in him and follow him. And for those of you who have been following him and have experienced suffering because of how he has called you, or where he has called you, then you can know that the suffering that you experience It's no different than what others experience who follow him. But he will allow a way out before that temptation becomes too strong for us to bear. His suffering is for a purpose. It's for our good and it's for his glory. And so we can trust him in that. And again, 
Easier said than done for me too. And then, ultimately, we have to entrust ourselves to him, believe that he has a plan, do right, do what he has called us to do, but entrust it to him. And do good until he returns. Because one day we'll get to dwell with him and be with him. One day we'll get to rejoice with him. And that day is coming for all of us. Whether we experience death or we experience his second coming, he has promised to return. In whichever way, judgment is coming. And do we have a relationship with him or do we not? And if we do, we'll be able to rejoice with him. And if not, then the worst of our suffering is yet to come. And that's just the biblical truth of it. Yet he provides hope through his son. He did not come, Jesus did not come to condemn the world. We were already condemned. He came to save us. He came to save us. So wherever you are this morning, respond to him. Let's pray and we'll have our time of invitation.